0: Hello, and welcome to the THCC podcast. Thank you for joining us. At THCC, we are a vibrant, multicultural, and multi-generational church at the heart of East London in Tower Hamlets. And we gather every Sunday to worship God, learn more from the Bible, and have fellowship with one another. Our passion and desire is to see the community around us to be changed on the good news of Jesus Christ. Now it's time for this week's sermon and we pray that this message you're about to hear would be a real encouragement for you in your journey with Jesus. I'm reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born... He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Amen. As you may have just witnessed, I'm kind of clumsy and I dropped both of these items during the songs. So that's a good start. Hello, everyone. Hello. Oh, love that energy from the audience. Let's just check this works. Good. Hi, I'm Katie. i proud of Tony for pronouncing my surname correctly for the first time in his life. It's a good start. And it's great to see you this evening. For anyone who doesn't know me, I'm just part of THCC. I, I come here and I call this my family. Now, it's December the, twi- uh, the 17th, and you didn't need me to tell you that, did you? because even if you don't celebrate Christmas at this time of year, you genuinely know what the day is. Someone's got an advent calendar, and they're harping on about the number of days left to Christmas, because, of course, we are in countdown mode. It is less than 10 days away from cream egg season. (laughs) The 26th of December is in our sights. Now, long-time lover of Cadbury and a strong haircut, My mum is in the audience this evening. I'm sure we can find a pair of kitchen scissors if you would like a fresh cut. Um, And you can imagine my distress when just under eight years ago, my life was turned upside down. The recipe for cream egg got changed. A pale imitation of the real thing, and nobody I knew believed me. Dead as their taste buds must have been, but Cadbury's confessed. And in an article from The Guardian, it reads, Monday 12th of January 2015 will go down in confectionery history as a bad day. (laughs) A hurtful day. The day when it was revealed that Cadbury's cream eggs have changed forever. No longer Shall the eggshell be made from delicious Cadbury Dairy milk chocolate? It will instead be made from disgusting, foul, vomit-inducing, standard cocoa mixed chocolate. Now, anyone who writes this passionately, and boy did the author go on, is my kind of person. I actually had to redact some of this tweet from the time, because I was too embarrassed to show you it tonight, and I will be removing it before I apply for jobs next year because I was not okay about this. And if you're wondering why I'm talking about cream eggs, I understand. Just be grateful that Tony gave me a time limit because originally this was two pages long. (laughs) I I included a lot more of the article and there was a lot of cream egg metaphors throughout the sermon. But the answer is quite simple. So Easter is what makes Christmas relevant, just as Christmas does to Easter. So now we're going to talk about Christmas and Easter. And it's a story of hope for Christians around the world, and one that I want to share a piece of you a piece of with you today. and um, I love Tatiana's testimony because it I could have sat down and not done this. It was so perfect for, for what I want to share with you. But I'm not going to assume that just because you're in church tonight that you know the Christmas story or the bi- or any part of the Bible, really. So I'm going to do the spark notes of the spark notes of the spark notes of the Bible just very quickly. Um, forgive me if you already know this and for the, for the fact that it's detail light, but I don't want to leave anybody behind. Okay, so the Bible is made up of loads of books. And you may have heard of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books, and it's the story of creation and God's relationship with his people before the birth of his son Jesus on earth. So this part is full of hundreds of years of Jewish history, songs, poetry, laments, journeys, Noah and his ark, Jonah and his whale. all of that juicy good stuff is in the Old Testament. And it's also full of something called prophecies, which are words and promises from God about what will happen in the future. And they help us understand something of the nature of God, they encourage us, and they give us hope and assurance of the future and of the person of Jesus. And what Daniel just read to us, um, which is our main reading for this sermon, is from Isaiah, who was a prophet and wrote one of the books of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have 27 books. And it's the story of Jesus' birth onwards, A.D. and B.C., um, and the stories of his life on earth, from the forming of the early church, then ending with some spicy bits in Revelation at the end, which haven't happened yet on our timeline. This bit, from Christmas to Easter, which is Jesus' life that we're talking about tonight, happens in the New Testament. And we get multiple accounts of it referred to in the Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's three key moments that I want us to anchor our exploration of hope around tonight, and that is the manger, the cross, and the empty tomb. So good news for the people who are here for the Nativity this evening. We are starting with the manger. Bad news is, I'm going to push us beyond the comfort of a Christmas card. Because with our nativity sets and our Christmas tree toppers and our traditions, we can really risk sanitizing Christmas. We can lose the context completely of what was actually going on in Bethlehem at the time. So travel east with me for a moment. The year is about 1 BC, and the world that Jesus was born into was wild. Taxes were upwards of 60%. It was taxes on taxes and taxes. Lots of it was illegal. 10% of the population had everything, and 90% were largely slaves on their own land. Instead of taxes going into public systems, like we hope that they do here, (laughs) um, they were just taken by rulers like King Herod, who's the villain of of the nativity story, just to make them richer. It was an oppressive, politically corrupt situation for ordinary people like Mary and Joseph. And one Bible scholar puts it like this, Jesus was born into an essentially third world context under a military dictatorship. It was a society where everyone was coerced. Another one says this, certainly there was tension. No one likes to have a murderer living over them or be heavily taxed, which is a truth I think I'm sure we can all agree with tonight. Mary, as a virgin, is pregnant with Jesus and engaged to Joseph when Caesar calls a census. And from what I could understand from what I read, it was basically just to find out how much money he was going to get that year and work out what was owed to him. So Mary and Joseph start the long journey of somewhere around 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. On foot, maybe with a donkey, we like to assume so, don't we, when we're putting on nativity sets together. But please also understand, women at this time were not a big deal. Um, And Mary's life was in danger for the shame she could have brought on her family if Joseph hadn't believed that she was pregnant with the Son of God. And God gave Joseph a vision, telling him that it was the Messiah she was pregnant with. And this passage that we're looking at opens with, For unto us a child is born, a son is given. Now, we've got the end of the story, but the Jewish people had been waiting for that prophecy to be fulfilled for 700 years. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can't even wait for the microwave to finish for three minutes without going off and doing something else. 700 years of waiting, of groaning in expectation, of hearing these stories handed down from father to son, mother to daughter, and of giving up hope. It's a fragile, difficult, politically corrupt time. And it kind of reminds me of another point in history, well, Plenty, really, but the one I'm actually talking about is December 2022. Silence. (laughs) Sorry, but this is not a fluffy story, and we do not live in fluffy times. It's time to be real. Now, if you don't know what be real is, thank goodness there's at least one teenager in the room, (laughs) Um, It's social media's latest answer to mine for authenticity in this generation, to get beyond the heavily edited life highlights that appear on other platforms. Be Real notifies you once a day at a random time, and it uploads a photo from your front and back camera of whatever you're doing, however it finds you in the moment. So, let's be real. This is our two-minute moment of the day to admit to ourselves what's really going on inside. It feels hard right now to trust governments, to feel secure, to understand the economy, to reckon with climate change, and that's just on the outside. In Hebrews, hope is described as an anchor for our souls. So if hope is an anchor, it needs to be attached to something to keep us steady. Often hidden deep below the surface, it can be a pretty vulnerable place. And so my question to you, and don't worry, this is not an audience participation situation, is what is your hope in tonight? Maybe you're hoping to overcome addiction, looking for an end to your unemployment. Maybe you're disappointed because you've put your hope in a person like your boss or a teacher, or the success of your business or your exam results. Maybe you're opening the cupboards and wondering what you're going to be able to put in them next week. Wondering if joy will ever return again after grieving the loss of someone that you love. Hoping to build a family, find housing, perhaps something that's happened this year that's torn through your faith and you don't know how you're going to come back from it. Maybe you know, you know hope like an old friend and you're full of joy, which is great for you, but please just do it away from the rest of us. No, honestly, if you are feeling hopeful, that's wonderful. We need a lot of hope in the world. And I don't know what it is for you, but I know it's a deep-down thing because humans are hardwired to be meaning-making machines. We, it's what separates us from the other animals, right? You know, In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, it says that God has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end that can actually be quite an uncomfortable reality to live in. On the one hand, we know there must be more than this and we have eternity in our hearts. It's the way we were created by an eternal God. And yet, on the other, it's not quite through to its completion yet and we don't understand what there is to come. So it can be a challenge, right? And it's hard to feel anchored right now. Um, I went walking the Christmas lights a couple of weeks ago, and these ones in Carnaby Street, for me, just about summed up the chaos that I'm describing. So you can't maybe read it, but it says, Carnaby Street welcomes the world. Thank you very much, Carnaby Street. Open your eyes. Is this the real life? Wish, and then that word hope. The layering up of random platitudes, bohemian rhapsody lyrics, and service-level sentiment and the idea of hope muddled in there as if it's as mediocre and meaningless as a wish. And there's so many things being thrown at us that we are making meaning from and building identity in. Mixed messages in the media, politics and the economy in a mess, increasingly intelligent algorithms and AI dividing us further online, And as we plunge further into our echo chambers, the loneliness epidemic, particularly amongst young people, is shocking. So the world that we are in feels fragile, and the world that Mary and Joseph were in felt fragile. So imagine hearing that there's deliverance coming, the Messiah that you've been promised from generation to generation of your family, 700 years is on his way. The meaning of Messiah is anointed one, meaning that Jesus was the chosen one to save the world. And I don't know about you, but if the saviour of the world is coming, and I'm living in 1 BC, I'm really going to be pretty hopeful that my tax bill is going to be cut as part of that deliverance. And people had all kinds of expectations, of a kingly authority born into a palace, of a fighter who would start a revolution. It made King Herod feel so threatened that he dispatched people to go and find this baby. And the anticipation was at an all-time high, and suffice to say, people were not expecting him to turn up in the place where they fed the animals. For the Messiah, the anointed one, to be born into this place was totally bizarre. The manger was significant because it was so unexpected, so humble and lowly a birth for the savior of the earth. We don't know exactly what it looks like. We depict it as a stable, it could have been a cave, it might have been the basement, but we know that it was the place where the animals were kept because the baby was put in a feeding trough. And it doesn't make sense to the human meaning-making desire in all of us for a Messiah promised deliverer to be born into a peasant family and laid in a manger. And it doesn't make sense because royalty is out of place in ordinary places. I mean, this is a waitrose, but I don't know the last time that someone took a picture of you doing your milk shopping. But Jesus is known as servant king. In Mark, it says the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. It's an upside down kingdom. The manger is low down and humble for a reason, and the sign is loud and clear. This birth is one for everyone. Okay, so let's move to the cross. And let me introduce you to the person of Jesus, which Tatiana already did so beautifully this evening. He is the radical rabbi, the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And his birthplace was not the only unusual thing about him, because Jesus was fully man and fully God. And this is one of the beliefs that separates Christianity from other world faiths that Jesus was God, not a teacher not a prophet, he was the living God. Jesus walked this earth as a human, understanding human pain, human loss, human temptation and suffering, but that he lived blamelessly and never sinned so that he could die for our sins and rise again to conquer death for our sake. So fully man. Jesus is no stranger to human pain. And when I asked you at the start what you're hoping for, Jesus knows what that feels like. Because Jesus was born into poverty. He took his first breath in a manger, destitute and poor. Jesus was a refugee, an immigrant. His family had to flee to Egypt to avoid being killed. Jesus faced grief. The shortest verse in the Bible is two words long, and it's Jesus wept. Weeping isn't a little single kind of dramatic tear down, the, down your face. Weeping is abandoned to your grief. Jesus knew exhaustion. He needed rest and he retreated from the crowds. Jesus knew stress, so much so that he sweat drops of blood. Jesus was opposed He experienced political and religious opposition. This was a death plot. Jesus was betrayed by more than one of his closest friends. Jesus was mocked by the very same crowds who praised him barely a week or so before. And Jesus felt forsaken by God. He cried out. And in John 16 We find Jesus telling his disciples what's going to happen in the days leading up to and after the cross. And for me, this is my most reassuring part of the Bible, um, because he's telling them who his hope is anchored to in spite of his worldly troubles. In a heavenly father who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus knows that he is a fulfillment of the promise and he has to go and die on a cross. And he knows his disciples will leave him and that he will face that ultimately alone. But he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And there, in the words of Jesus himself, is that duality come to life. Fully man, an honest assurance of worldly pain, in this world you will have trouble. But coupled with the fact that, God, uh, that Jesus had the power of God in him to overcome it, that this world, this life, our pain, our hope is not the final chapter of the book, his victory is. Because the man who walked on that cross was also God. Jesus calmed storms, Jesus healed people, He walked on water. Jesus' goodness offended people. Those tax collectors I was talking about earlier were not popular. And he ate with them. And likewise, he went and visited lepers who were cast out from the city. Jesus welcomed women and children. And again, in this world, it can be so difficult to kind of anchor ourselves around that as an idea, but... Women and children were not the the talk of the town. They were not popular at the time. This was a revolutionary behavior from a rabbi. Jesus loved the outcasts, and Jesus cast out demons. And lastly, the most significant, Jesus rose from the dead. Now not all of those things make Jesus God but reveal the Holy Spirit at work in him and it's this last one about rising from the dead which makes all the difference in our story. Because he's not saved from his suffering but heavenly love embodied he chooses to go through a criminal's death. On the cross is a God that loved you so much that he came to die so that you might live not your fixed-up, January-goal-smashing self, exactly as you are today. Incomplete, hoping, struggling, trying, restless, excited, whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever this story meets you, that is the you that he came to save. And in doing so, he comes down and draws a line from the lowest place to the highest place, and he spreads his arms from east to west. That birth was for everyone, which becomes the death that was for everyone, to anchor us to that same heavenly hope that he had as he walked to the cross. Because we were left, if we were left to hope in ourselves, the world would never quite get there. Okay, so time to bring it home, because it doesn't end there on the cross. Remember my cream egg? At Easter, we have Easter eggs that represent the empty tomb. So we're now in about 33 AD, three days after Jesus died. Now picture how people are feeling, 700 years waiting for the Messiah, about 30 years with him, and then he's gone. In fact, we don't really have to imagine it much because there's a story in the Bible about two of Jesus' disciples who he overhears saying this. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. So they're pretty skeptical and they've pretty much lost hope. But then they learn about the empty tomb and Jesus reveals himself to them. Death has been beaten. And then they see Jesus ascend to heaven and history is changed forever. In Hebrews 6, which I referred to earlier, it tells, Jesus, it tells us that Jesus is there as our forerunner, king and priest. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf he has become a high priest forever. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul in Jesus sent from heaven to deliver us. Born in a manger, humble and lowly, a birth for everyone. A radical rabbi who fully man, knew the world's struggle, but love sent down, who fully, blameless as God, faced a criminal's death on a cross. And then three days later, he conquered death and left an empty tomb. There's no two ways about it, friends. We live in a broken and fractured world, between the now and the not yet. The eternal hope is somewhere caught up in this moment. But there is so much good to be found in the promises of the Bible. In Revelation, which is the bit after all of this, right? That spicy bit I referred to at the end, the bit we can't all wait for. It says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So when we think about what we're hoping for, I would that that we could increase in hope by putting it in the right thing. Because when we feel hope is lost, it's an indicator that it's not anchored to something or someone eternal and everlasting. I'll leave us with the second part of our promise in Isaiah, which says the government will be on his shoulders, not on ours or Rishi Sunak's or Joe Biden's or Vladimir Putin's, on his shoulders. We don't have to do that anymore. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, an advocate to lean on for strength in times of trouble. He will be mighty God, powerful, strong, majestic. It was a humble birth, but it's from a mighty king. Everlasting Father, he has no end. His love and his, his being and his wholeness will not grow weary like we do. Prince of peace. Now peace in the Hebrew is the word shalom, meaning wholeness. That wholeness you crave, that thing that you hope for, it will be there in the person of Jesus Christ. And these are the promises of the character of our God, which are eternal, seven years before, seven hundred years before his birth. That set of verses ends, Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And I don't know about you, <laughs> but that is the the my hope anchor, I want to be attached to that tonight, so we need to we need to close there and i 'll pray for us as we do um, but if you felt in your heart this evening that, oh, maybe my hope's not there, this thing this year really let me down, or I'm really struggling with grief and I don't know where to place it, then please do speak to somebody that you've seen at the front tonight. We'd love to pray with you. We also have um, some little books called Is Christmas Unbelievable by Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, They're going to be on the uh, tea and coffee stand at the back and at the basher table, and we'd love for you to take one completely free of charge. And I'm going to pray for us now as we close and go into another time of worship. Father, thank you that you did not just sit up in heaven, aloof and away from us. Lord, that you saw us in our pain, in our discomfort, and you walked with us on earth so that we might live. That you didn't do that in a numbers-counting exercise, but that you did that for the one that you were the shepherd that left the 99 and came for the one because each and every one of us in our unique creation is so treasured and so precious to you that you would die on a cross to save our souls. Lord, I just pray for anybody in this room who is feeling hopeless, who is feeling anxious, who is lost, who is lonely, that they would know family in this place, that they would know a father in you. And we thank you so much for the sacrifice that you made and for conquering death for something that we could never have done by ourselves. Amen.